Welcome to Your Path to Nonprofit Leadership, the weekly podcast that features the very best in productivity and professional development in the nonprofit sector. I'm your host, Patton McDowell, and happy to give you ideas that can elevate your leadership in your current or future organization. Well, I'm excited to reconnect with an old friend in this episode of The Path. Uh, Kishana Palmer is doing fantastic work in the nonprofit sector as a coach, a trainer, a speaker, and a thought leader on all things philanthropic. Kishan and I dive into all of the headlines that are facing nonprofit leaders right now, and she will give you plenty to think about as you navigate your journey towards senior leadership in the nonprofit sector. In particular, we talk about three things. Number one, the leadership lessons Kishana learned herself along the way and how she sees some of these lessons playing out with nonprofit leaders across the country. Second thing we talk about is, is how she is wrestling with, in support of her nonprofit colleagues, the, the challenge of uh, dealing with your board of directors. How do we engage these volunteer leaders who are so vital to our nonprofit success? And how do we build diverse and effective boards, particularly in this current COVID-19 environment? And finally, she offers some great specific advice for those of you considering the nonprofit path in the first place, as well as those of you that are on the path trying to find your way into the big chair uh, as an executive leader. Don't forget to check out the show notes for this episode. Just go to the podcast or the news page at PattonMcDowell.com, and you'll find all the resources, links, and books, as well as more information on the great work Kishana is doing in the nonprofit world. Speaking of resources, don't forget to reach out to us. I'd be happy to have a conversation with you about your journey and how we might be able to help you or your organization navigate its strategic challenges or opportunities right now. Just go to our website and uh, sign up through any of the Contact Us forms and notice as well on our homepage the monthly resources we're putting out. Uh, Feel free to sign up there and you'll get more of the same. Without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Kishana Palmer. Kishana, thank you for joining me on the path. All right. I am so excited to be here with my friend. <laughs> it, it, it is a long time coming. Uh, you and I have shared some good nonprofit experiences in the past right here in North Carolina, but your journey has been an exciting one, uh, an impressive one uh, ever since we last were together. And I'm excited for our listeners to to hear about that journey, to learn more about the things you've learned. And so why don't we start with that, Kishana? How did you come to the nonprofit sector in the first place? You know, it's always so funny. I remember my my old bio used to say that I slipped and fell, I slipped and fell in the kitchen floor of the nonprofit world. <laughs> I just came in for a, a, a glass of milk, you know, and slipped and tripped, fell on the floor and here I am. Um, I started on investment banking and after I got my MBA, um, I realized like that was just not what I wanted to do. And I was really young. I think I got my MBA when I was 21. Um, turning 22. And so I didn't really, life had not really begun for me yet. And I, because I had gone to college on a service learning scholarship, which in those days, that was unheard of. You, you're getting a whole scholarship for your education because you do community service. Yes. Wow. Wow. It made natural sense. I loved people. Um, I loved money. <laughs> um, and I loved working in the community, but I knew I didn't want to do direct service. And so my first gig was as a grant writer at a huge um, decentralized agency up in Boston. And I learned really quickly on that, although I'm a gifted writer, I didn't want to be behind the desk all day. I wanted to be out with people. And so I I was able to do some public-private partnership work um, with that organization, which helped me to kind of understand how to bring our corporate partners into our work. And then um, I started working on um, individual giving. And it wasn't until I moved to North Carolina um, that I really dug into fundraising um, in earnest um, in sort of what we would think of the major gifts and annual giving, et cetera. Um, and so I cut my teeth at Florence Crittenden Services, right? Oh, in yeah. Um, and that was really it for me. So, you know, I... Um, 
join our sector at a time where, you know, I just had some really, really amazing folks who were my mentors and guides and teachers um, who were tough on me, you know, um, you had to really like show and prove in order to be able to make your way. And um, because I came into youth serving organizations, that's where I stayed. Right. And so most of my work, my entire career have been either in K-12, in ed reform, or in um, support services of that work um, in organizations that support the, to support young people. So that's how I started. Love it. And again, you've had such good stories to share ever since then. Uh, in fact, before we unpack some of them, um, uh, you're, you're writing, you're speaking, you're coaching, you're consulting, you're running a business. Uh, I ask all my guests and particularly you, Ishana, how do you stay organized? What, what tools and tactics do you use to, to keep everything moving? Absolutely. Well, y'all, let me just tell you, um, don't let this pretty face fool you. Okay. <laughs> so I'm a, I'm an old lady who lives in a shoe. Um, and I still do things by hand. And in fact, Pat, right now I literally have my to-do list, which is on a large sticky note that's lined and it has my list by week. And it says to do, to delegate, to call or email and to learn. Love it. Love it. And it makes it to a digital format because I have to actually live somewhere in perpetuity, but I still write out what I need to do by hand. Um, and then I use uh, online tools to leverage my time. And so I stay organized by time blocking. Um, I am really vigilant about how I spend my time each week. And I even schedule time for myself. And when I'm really on my job, um, I put myself first. When I'm yeah. in a high period. Um, I put work first because if I don't get the work done, then I don't get to enjoy myself, but it's a cadence. And then I use some software tools to allow me to be able to, um, facilitate that. And so right now I'm using ClickUp to do project management. Um, and I live and die in Google, um, in the Google suite of services. Um, and then there's some other tools I use for time, but between that and, um, really just kind of old fashioned work. Um, that is how I regiment my time. And then lastly, something that has nothing to do with any technology, um, learning to say no to stuff. Like what yes. is, what needs yes. to be true in order for me to say yes and no. And when I was earlier in my career as a full-time practitioner, and then when I was early in building my practice, um, as a consultant, I said yes to everything. And I'm sure that you cannot, you know, you identify with that having built Absolutely. a um, that, you know, part of being able to stay organized is understanding where your zone of genius is and what your wheelhouse really is and pushing to grow that and to strengthen that so that you are operating at the capacity that really demonstrates your excellence, um, and pushes you, but also does not wear you out because you're doing things you don't need to be doing. That's such good advice, both on a productivity level, but in a professional development level in general, the saying no. And I guess the other one, Kishana, is taking care of yourself because I'm sure you would agree in this, this new kind of unknown era we're in now, uh, work and life and everything kind of blends together. And so it sounds like you literally put things on the calendar to make sure you're taking care of yourself. Absolutely. Um, Pat, you know, one of the things that I, I learned to accept about myself and then also I talk a lot about, um, when it tips. And so I am, I love my work. And when I was in school, I loved school. Like it was the place where I shined and I understood it. Um, I love problem solving and leading and creating space for people and help people to show up and just kind of really get them to say yes. Like, you know, that's part of why fundraising was such a lure for me because getting folks to see themselves in the community they live in and they work in and getting them to see the, um, the, the power that they could unleash alongside me as opposed to over me. Um, yeah. Yeah. That was so powerful as a tool. And so um, part of being able to take care of myself meant turning all of those skills that I have um, that I'm able to leverage with other people and really using them for myself, you know, like being able to say, okay, Kish, so why aren't you putting yourself first? So why do you not think you're worth it? So why do you not want to be bothered with yourself? So why are you doing this kind of busy work? Yep. And I think as leaders, whether you have a leader by title or you have a leader by your body of work, um, or you just leading yourself, 
um, we have to be able to feel, to be willing to have those conversations and to course correct um, and to create some frameworks for ourselves that allow us the freedom um, to be both creative, but within, uh, you know, within some confines, some structure. I love that. And I'm, I'm glad, again, you lift up those points that need to be lifted up for a lot of people that I think need that kind of encouragement. And especially now, Kishana, that COVID-19 is, is certainly impacted you personally and professionally uh, more than many. Um, I'm sure you're talking to a lot of friends and colleagues in the nonprofit space. Funding uncertainty seems to be the headline I hear the most, but is that what you hear? What, what kind of issues are you hearing as you interact with the organizations with which you work? I mean, I think that people are fearing the unknown. And so the unknown is manifesting itself in lots of things. So for example, I have one client organization that um, has a $35 million endowment and has enough money in there in, in the bank to be able to pay their team for a year without right, a problem. Right. And yet cut all of their cost of living increases. Like, really? yes, they have the money. They, they actually have the money and did not involve anybody beyond their executive level in the decision-making or even in the conversation. And so the fear of the unknown is having people who are in different positions of leadership operate in the craziest of ways. And so when you think about what people are fearing, funding, sure, um, fearing for their jobs and fear makes us go to our most primal ways of operating. Right. And so what I'm seeing, because there are people who are funding, even if you work for a funding entity or organization, there are people who are raising the money. There are people who are leading. We, talk, we tend to talk about it in big terms, the funders, the leadership, the organization. But there are actually people at the helm of that. And so think about, Patton, when you had, you know, the first time you scraped your knee as a young boy or the first time, you know, you and your, your siblings and your friends went to go do like a, a, a hide and go seek. Or think of the time <laughs> when you felt like, you know, your back was up against the wall when you were young, young. All of our fundam fundamental, foundational ways of being, when our back is up against the wall, come out in a place of uncertainty. And so, so if, if you didn't have a good experience growing up when things went left, depending on your season of life, you've lived through um, professionally the, the uh, economic and housing crisis of 08, which we were in Charlotte together at that time. You've lived through the, in the eighties when inflation was ridiculously and through the roof. Um, you've lived, depending on your season of life, you've lived through um, multiple wars. Yep. Um, and so your mental model about how you operate in that time immediately comes into effect, regardless of the data that's really happening right now. So I'm seeing people really live out their personal experience at work, even if they can't name it. Such a good point. And, and that primal instinct that they may not be able to articulate is driving, it sounds like in some cases, uh, uh, overreaction. Uh, are you, on the other hand, seeing some organizations that are pivoting nicely to this new yes. environment, the challenge? Yes, absolutely. So what I think I'm seeing in terms of an awesome pivot is that if you didn't have your stuff together before, if you didn't have your communication strategy together before, if you had been putting off your doing your um, calling your donor family and making sure you understand why folks are giving and when and how you're loving on them, if you didn't have good practices in place before, it is like the emperor wears new clothes. You are just naked before the people. Yes, indeed. And so, right, that though, like so, so organizations that are doing well have have good bones and their people have good instincts. And so they are literally responding in turn and talking to why us, why now, why critical, why urgent. And that's the basis of us as fundraisers and as leaders in our space of making those decisions, of being able to articulate why your organization's mission is critical and relevant and needed, necessary, and forward moving right now. And then how you can make space for your donor partners and your donor family to move along with you on that journey. And that's something that should be an iterative conversation. So organizations that are pivoting uh, most quickly and are really starting to thrive, we're, we're having active conversations. They didn't do their plans and put them on the shelf. They actually were moving with them 
And so I've been seeing a lot of that. And so I'll give you an example. One organization that I'm working with right now um, does wraparound services for young people in schools um, during the school year. Well, our young people are not in school. And yet that safety net of services is really critical to them and those families just to have a fighting chance to get back in the game. Right. So it's not just about learning games, but it will be. And so they are focused on immediate needs for those families just to keep the boat up in the water and talking to funders about. And, and while we're doing that, we are also helping our partners in schools, in districts to be able to think about what happens if these babies don't come back to school in September and August. That's right. But what happens when they do? And people are responding. But you'd establish, of course, relationships before then, right? That's also your That's lesson it. here. We That's can't it. just show up now with desperation and try to fundraise, right? That's it. That's it. Because you'll get you some um, desperation funding. <laughs> right. Which but won't be good. Exactly. But you're not going to get it um, over time. Yeah. But to reiterate, if you have the relationship, you're encouraging folks to, to, to continue that conversation and not be afraid to, I guess, with sensitivity, ask for money. Absolutely. And you know what else, Patton, that has been really clear and really working, particularly for the organizations I'm working with and organizations I'm seeing. I'm, I'm, in, I'm on Twitter. I'm looking at people's social media terms. Right. I'm looking at folks are, are they're navigating their email communications. We're always talking, and largely in our sector, about wanting to be much more in the driver's seat or at least in the front of the car with the GPS map with funders as they're making decisions around priorities. And in the first few, few weeks of the um, pandemic, we saw a lot of, at least I did, a lot of blogs and a lot of open questions um, on social media about what funders were going to do. Hello, friends. This is the opportunity to pick up the phone, to talk to your program officer, to talk to your major donor and say, we actually have the idea about what you what we should be doing. And we've talked to our counterparts in this community, and this is what we want to bring to the table. Because back to the earlier point, people are making the decisions. Right. And I take it you're getting favorable responses when you have that kind of conversation. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and there's it's not gonna be um it's not gonna be um roses and 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 peonies and smell goods for everybody. Because I got an email from a major funder who just announced that they're getting rid of an entire body of work in less than 45 days. Wow. All the organizations in that portfolio, some of whom rely on that particular funder to up to 30 to 40% of their operating budget, gone. Wow. So there are going to be funders who are making all types of decisions that we don't understand. So it is our responsibility to your point about making sure those relationships are in place to be preemptive in having those conversations. So this is the time to have no fear, to ask big and to really go for it because the answer is always no, if you don't ask. Absolutely. Right. And if you retreat now, you may be retreating permanently as an organization, right? Absolutely. Well, Absolutely. Something you've seen, Shauna, uh, the good, bad, and ugly uh, in, in nonprofit sense are board relations. I'm curious your thoughts on what you're seeing maybe in general or maybe now in particular as it relates to our nonprofit leader friends interacting with their boards of directors. I think organizations who are getting it, and I'll use this right, <laughs> um, are in active conversations with their board members. And so what has been quite curious to see is that, they, you know, and Pat, you know this from your board work, there are lots of organizations whose boards are not governing. I don't know what they're doing. I'm not <laughs> sure what's happening over there. Uh-huh. I'm not really sure. But the chinks in the armor are being revealed. And so um, you have folks who, whose boards are like, how can we be bold? How can we go big? But I've seen a lot. Back to that fear, that fear aspect, a lot of boards who are like, oh, my gosh, you know, we got to hold down the fort, you know, like close the shutters. And so really being able to have simple, clear recommendations for the board to be able to consider, to be thoughtful about that, that's going to be really important. So that board executive relationship, critical, 
critical at this particular time. And so CEOs and executive directors, chief executives of organizations are really, really going to have to shore up their relationships with their boards. And you better hope like hell that you have a good relationship with your executive team because they have to back your play. And that's whether you are a large institutional organization, hospital, university, college, et cetera, or federated organization, um, or if you are a local organization doing mighty work. You know, and so the board is going to be instrumental, I think, in really leaning into their fiduciary responsibility of sustainability and of vitality for the organization. That is a part of their charge. And so really making sure board members understand that and that they get behind the organization to move the organization forward and or to use this time as an opportunity to go, what are we really doing here? Good question. I mean, pose the strategic question in general that now that we have to step back, maybe yeah. now's the time to reconsider. Yes, exactly right. So I think you're going to see some organizations close and we're yep. going to think maybe it's because of funding. Mm, maybe it's because the organization was nice to have, not necessary in the first place. Or there was another organization who was fulfilling that need differently, or they were getting at that need in a much more systemic way, or they were having um, outcome-driven impact. Um, and so I think that's going to be really important for us to, to keep sight of and not just to think it's a funding issue, because oftentimes, as you and I know, um, the funding is not necessarily the issue. It's, it typically is other stuff. Right. Exactly uh, right. But I, I love I love your point that uh, be proactive, um, because if you're not, I'm sure more funders are going to be asking the question, hey, why are we funding three organizations like yours in the same community? Why can't you all work together? I mean. Do you envision more strategic alliances and partnerships maybe coming out of this? Absolutely. And in fact, um, I've been seeing um, organizations who are putting together webinars, particularly funding uh, intermediaries, putting together webinars for their cohorts to talk about that very thing. I mean, the Emerson Collective did one recently um, that they um, had their grantees and folks who were interested join a webinar to understand how to merge organizations. You know, one of the, my biggest gripes as a consultant and as being a longtime fundraiser is every time I see on my timeline, one of my friends, my friend's friend, my friend's friend's cousin, somebody with well-meaning intentions say, I just launched my nonprofit and Patton, I know I shouldn't. Yeah, but, but you're not excited, are you? And I am like 99.9% never excited. <laughs> right. Like literally like almost never because I'm, I look at the mission and I'm like, what in the hell? First of all, somebody's is, already doing it. Right. And, and, and somebody's already doing it. You know, like, it, like, why didn't you just become a donor? Why didn't you join the board? If you wanted to see them move forward? Why didn't you ask any questions? Why didn't you do any research? And yep. so with yep. 1.5 million, you know, nonprofit organizations and growing right now in the U.S. alone. Let's not even talk about Canada, the U.K., the Caribbean, et cetera. Um, there's going to be a lot of organizations who are going to struggle and need to close their doors. And some I have to say thank you and please bring your talent to organization there who has figured out a different pathway forward, but could really use your talent and expertise. Yes, so well put. I mean, it, I guess it, it's well-intentioned. I know you and I would yeah. agree, but... Uh, in terms of serving the greater good, adding another nonprofit to the field is not necessarily the answer and certainly doesn't serve the communities we're trying to serve. Absolutely. Um, you, you've addressed this a bit, but let me ask you again about kind of strategic planning. Another question I get organizations say, you know, Patton, how can I even think about my three or five year plan right now? And I'm just trying to survive the next 90 days. Mm-hmm. Um, have you found any particular tactics or approaches? It sounds like, again, knowing you, it's being proactive. It's all about being proactive. Let me tell y'all something. Friends, listen in. If, you're, if this is in your car or it's in your ear pods as you listen to the sound of my voice, listen in. Turn it up <laughs> so I can tell you something. If you do not have your strategic plan on your desk right now, on a tab, on your computer, looking at how you can shift However, you have operationalized your plan for the next 12 to 18 months, depending on where you are in your plan year. Anything you do right now, if you are using your strategic plan to operationalize your organization, is going to be tone deaf. And so you have a responsibility 
to take the time, whether it is to do a half day retreat, whether it is that you need to bring in some outside help that is a good use of your organization's resources to do a quick pivot. I don't care if you're a cruise ship, even cruise ships get pulled in and out of port by tugboats. Okay. And so to do that pivot, because your strategic plan is your North star, your job in your organization. If it is not sitting on the shelf gathering dust is to operationalize it. If you are operating, you should be operating differently. So therefore it is a top priority to be able to look at that plan, even in the next 90 days, so that you can make moves that are not short-sighted and are not you cutting off your nose to spite your face. I hope everyone has heard me. Please rewind this if you need to listen to it again. Okay, yeah. Dad, that's all I have to say about that. <laughs> so I, we're going to run this part of the tape like three times straight. How about that, Kishana? We'll just run it on a loop uh, yeah, so that like, they'll hear it. Listen to the sound of my voice. <laughs> But, well, and it, it harkens back to your earlier point. I mean, funders are going to ask that same question, aren't they? I mean, I, again, I don't mean to speak for all of them, but if you're not prepared to articulate how your plan can pivot, then they're going to move on and fund somebody else. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, because although I believe in abundance and I believe there is enough resource for everyone, to be clear, if we look at any economic downturn, if we just look at the trend of giving over the last seven years alone, um, giving by percentage is increasing on a decreasing rate, at a decreasing rate, number right, one. Right. And so as the stock market is doing a dance and a twirl and a dip right now, and as people are really worried about their own families and their own futures, and you're really kind of thinking about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, of food, clothing, safety, shelter, um, Although there are some families that are doing way better than others, even folks from the most most modest of means are still giving to their uh, faith-based institutions, are still pouring into their local businesses and services so that folks can stay afloat. And they're still thinking about the organizations they care about, particularly if your mission affected them or their families in any part of their life. Right. And so really making sure that you are demonstrating that you understand what's happening with the times and that your plan is responsive enough and nimble enough to be able to move with the times. That is the gift of having a good strategic plan. And so it it, it is like imperative for organizations to really um, not use that as an opportunity to look away, but to use it as an opportunity to look it right in the face and to walk through it because you're not going to solve for it, but you can definitely, you can definitely learn through it, walk through it, move through it. Yep. Such good advice. And again, I guess I want to go back down the, the journey where you started um, lessons now that you're helping coach and teach others. Were there particular lessons when you first started, you alluded to some of the people, I guess the mentors and or bosses that helped shape your journey. Uh, Were there any particular lessons early that helped you that, perhaps would help one of our friends now that is considering the nonprofit path? Learn your, learn your craft. Um, one of the challenges that I have, and I teach a lot about intergenerational, managing intergenerational teams. I think I'm one of those folks who've always had that blended team from right. my earliest days. And one of the things that I see generationally now that probably existed when I was new to the profession, but I didn't articulate in the same way, um, folks who want the title before the work. Interesting. What do you mean? So you are a development associate, but you want the title of development manager because it sounds better. Well, a manager (laughs) does more self-directed work than an associate. And so if I still have to tell you everything you need to do, ma'am, you, ma'am or sir, you're not ready for that yet. Right. When I was new to the profession, I was like, well, I'm going to work. I'm going to prove myself. I'm going to show folks what I can do. I'm going to stay up late and study. I'm going to do all these things so that I can make sure I'm ready when I get my opportunity. And I see professionals now entering the field, particularly because there's more theory that they can learn in college, the degrees that go with our profession. Um, So they get more, they get more of the book stuff before they come in. The book stuff is book stuff for a reason, but you have to live it to translate it. And so what I would say for folks who are thinking about entering our profession, whether you are a professional who is switching professions or you are a new professional for work period, Learn, learn the work, like understand who is in your community, who is doing the work that you think you want to do and reach out to them. Um, my earliest mentor said to me, um, well, what do you have to offer me? <laughs> and I remember being like, I don't, I don't, ha- I have jokes, youth, <laughs> um, 
I'm going to keep you on your toes. I'll make it interesting. And initially she was like, good enough. We'll circle back to that question later. And when she asked me that question a year later, I had experiences. I looked at the world a little bit differently. I came at problem solving a little bit differently and had her think about her work differently. But I was able to get my fundamentals down and really understand what made a best practice a best practice. And then if I needed to remix it, what needed to be true? That's the first thing. So learn your work. The second thing I would say is build deep relationships. And so the thing that I didn't do well then that I do well now is when I first stepped into consulting full time, I realized I had lots of relationships. But if you imagine a pool, I had kiddie pool relationships. It just right. Myself, not right. deep. Flash around. But what you need as you navigate your career are people to open doors for you, people to vouch for you, people to say, hey, you thought about doing this thing over here? And the way you, part of the way you get to that is by doing good work, one. But two, to really be intentional about building relationships, which means you have to bring a little bit of vulnerability to the table so that people get to know a little bit about who you are and how you show up in the world so that they can connect with you so that when you have something to offer, they have something they can receive. And when you have something you need, somebody's like, oh yeah, Kashana, yeah, I know exactly who I need to connect you with. That I did not do well early on because I didn't understand the value of the connection of my own peers outside of my own organization. And so I would say that is the second thing that I think folks who are thinking about this work Relationships are not just about the donor relationships we're going to create. It's not about the potential celebrity, depending on what organization you're in, of the you know big donors and influencers, et cetera, that are available. But it's about the power and the influence of our own sector and folks who move in the sector, some who, don't do, who do it with no fame and no glory, that are able to open doors for you. And I think that's really, really critical if you're going to have longevity and enjoy our work. Um, love in that. The sector. Yep. Love it. And I've used the term kind of a personal board of directors that I have, yes. as you have uh, benefited immensely from. And of course, some of these colleagues and friends, uh, you know, they don't consider themselves with that title board member. But as far as I'm <laughs> concerned, they are on my board. It, 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 have you kind of, is there a sweet spot in terms of a number that you say, Kashana, like, you know, I have seven or eight or 10 or 12, or I know you've got lots of relationships, but in terms of this deep the deep pool, what kind of number does that look like to you? I mean, I have five or six people that are in my in the deep end of my pool. Yeah, and probably good. 30 on the shallow end, you know? <laughs> right. you know? Listen, you could drown in a tablespoon of water. Let's be real clear. <laughs> exactly. Um, you know, but, and then you can have a good time just kicking around in the, in the, in the shallow end. And the people like me who love the water, but don't swim, like I will slide my way into that three feet and enjoy my life. And so um, just really thinking of about five people who I can rely on around career around relationships, around being honest with me about um, how I'm moving in the world, um, who give me honest feedback. And I have one or two people who, no matter what, will open a door for me. Um, and then I, if you think about sort of concentric circles, and I have folks who are about from that. Um, so all in all, I probably have 35 or so people who um, over the last, you know, five to 10 years in particular, particularly the last five years, right. have really helped me to move in the world um, and, and really push me to be bold about how I approach um, the work and to keep loving on the sector because I kept trying to get out. Um, and I realized it wasn't the sector or the sector's work. It was how I was viewing myself in it, my worth in it, um, the value I was adding to it. And I just had to see myself a little bit differently. And so um, that's how I think I show up now and about and who's on my like personal board. So I have a I have a, a university board of directors, <laughs> <laughs> a board of trustees, yeah, you know. trustees. So, yeah. yeah, it yeah. sounds like well, I love that. And the concentric circle is a beautiful illustration, right, of maybe the board of trustees, but it's like you have a board of visitors or something else, whatever Absolutely. they use. Right. That, Absolutely. Uh, it's just such good advice. Um, Kishana, it's something you're, that you're passionate about, I know. Um, why are we losing people in the sector? Uh, and I know that's kind of an open-ended, yeah. uh, but, but I bet you have an opinion on that as well. I do. I always have an opinion. Um, I think <laughs> the data shows that people are just unhappy. Okay. Like that's, that's Kashana, um, unfancy, non-scientific 
summation of all the really good reports that have come out in the last five years or so. Focus on happy. In the nonprofit sector, which by the way, a lot of our, our for-profit fans, friends think the grass is greener in nonprofit, but you're confirming that a lot of us in the nonprofit sector are not happy. Exactly. You know, and I think some of it is our own doing. We treat each other like second-class citizens. Ooh, look at look at Fred coming from the corporate world, having been the head of sales. Now he's going to be the head of development. Fred doesn't have any idea about how to build relationships this way. I know anything <laughs> exactly. about the but he's going to do a great job. I mean, like, and we revere those folks, right? Except for the person who's over here who's been building and doing the work. Um, we are... Um, we fall on the sword of our own work first, glory second. Right, right. So we have a very interesting, you know, and sometimes fractured relationship with ourselves and our peers about elevating ourselves in the works. I think that's one of the things. People are not feeling seen. They're not being compensated. There is definitely um, uh, uh, pay parity. Um, that's an issue. And so, and there's there's equity work that's an issue. There's, there's all of the stuff that you're going to face in any sector we face it in our sector around how to retain really great people. We are not immune. And yet, because we have this sort of like, and I'm using a very broad brush, we have this like mission first, like we're not people. No, I'm like people first. So when right. I interview right. for candidates, I'm not interested in if you are, if you love the mission of my organization. Lots of us have to live it, experience it, see it in order to be in it. So you get to love it. Let me tell you what you better love, your work. Yes. And so if you don't love the functions that you're going to be doing day to day, I don't care how much you love this mission. So I think that part of our challenge is really being able to um, compensate, to elevate, and to give that sort of professional credence to the work and the, to the professionals that are doing really great work in all aspects of our sector. That's one. And then I think um, another is that we have an undercurrent of inequitable practices across our sector in everything from how we recruit and retain talent to the practices that are inequitable in an organization around our financial controls and protocols um, to how we elevate and promote people within our organizations. We don't get to confront our biases in the same way because we're good people. Yes, yes. We're such good people. And that phrase allows us the cloak of not being able to address inequitable practices, biases that we bring from our lived experiences and our mental models into the workplace. The fact that many of us have savior complexes, whether you're on the program side, the operation side, or the development side, that are manifest themselves in their work, in our work, and in the way we treat our team members. And I don't care who you are, you have, whether you have a, tea, a teaspoon, a tablespoon, or a ladle of like me bias, we want to work with and yes. work alongside folks who remind me of myself, of my friend growing up, of my daughter, of my fill in the blank. And that gets in the way of us doing things that feel risky. So Patton, going into this time right now, and you, at the beginning of our talk, we were talking about this sort of fear thing, right? Right. When you're in fear, you go back to the basics of what you know. So we are at great risk of losing more people right now, not just because of the fact that we might lose funding, but because when you revert back to what you know and how you behave when you're in that fear-based survival mode, all of your ugly stuff comes up to the surface, whether you like it or not. Yep. Sad, but true. And it's, yep. it's, it's easier to avoid it, isn't it, Kishana, that we, well, we, we just claim that other things are more important and more urgent. But Absolutely. You are reminding us that there's perhaps nothing more urgent. And do you start with the board? Where do you find when you break down these walls, which you are so good at doing, is that where you start? You know, I feel like I start wherever I am going to have the highest chance of success. Right. And so sometimes I can start with the executive leadership. Um, sometimes I do a lot of culture audits. And so sometimes I'll start with getting in with the teams and understanding where is the riptide? Where's that, where's that undercurrent happening within the organization? It's often not where we see um, it happening. Sometimes the board is first and sometimes the board is last, you know, gotcha. sometimes the board is obtuse. Okay. Right. 
And then I'm like, you know what? That's going to be hitting my head against the wall. Let me see if we can influence the the executive suite because they are operationalizing the mission. And so there are a lot more practices we can change that don't need board approval that can help us turn some things around and show some wins to then get over there. So I think when you're thinking about where do you start, particularly if you are a leader within an organization and you don't have the ability to hire a consultant like you or I to come in to do this work with organizations, you have to start where you have the greatest opportunity for that win. And I think that's really, really important. We don't think, we don't talk about that enough. Like you got to get those small wins in order for folks to start to say, okay, I'll try this too. All right, let me toe dip here. And so I hate to say it depends. No, it's a great point. And on the organization and where they have the weakest link and where there is the greatest chance for some wins um, in that work. Yeah, that's such a good point. And to suggest, a, or for me to suggest a singular solution could address such a complex challenge uh, would be kind of narrowly focused. And so you're right, we need to look at where, but the, your point is we, we got to get in somewhere, right? And not simply avoid the issue entirely. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and the reality of the situation is, you know, I've heard this expression used a lot now, particularly when it comes to equity work and particularly as it comes to, um, attracting and retaining talent that everybody is on a journey and i was saying this morning to a friend of mine some people have still not decided what they are packing in their suitcase (laughs) like (laughs) right right you know and i said so yes we're all on a journey but that is not an excuse to or a reason to not continue to take the steps to do the work um and i think that there has been a lot of lip service paid particularly around diversity equity and inclusion work um and it's become like the the fancy, you know, the, the catchy, the pop culture thing to say that we're doing. Um, but it shows up in your practices as an organization um, way beyond the statement you can put on your website. And so I think you're going to see organizations really have to look at that more now um, as they are thinking about how is the organization not just going to survive, but how is it going to thrive um, coming through this pandemic and then stepping into the next phase of their organization's existence. Well, and nobody walks the walk better than you do, uh, because you're right. Many of us talk the talk, but we're not walking the walk. And and I know you're trying to, you know, be a champion. You are a champion of, of communities of color in the nonprofit sector, particularly, Kishana, talk about how you're encouraging women of color to to engage in fundraising and nonprofit leadership, which I know is a challenge because they're not given the opportunities that, frankly, they deserve. Absolutely. You know, I always say, like, when I look at my bio, you know, I think I was updated the other day, and I was like, now I can say I have raised over $75 million. And I'm like, I've been in the sector for 18 years. Like, that should have a one behind it, period. <laughs> right, right. Based on folks who started with me or, you know, and it wasn't because I was, it's not lack of talent. Right. Um, you know, being told, oh, well, if you just get this one extra credential, well, if you just had this one extra experience, well, if you just, even my alma mater years ago, were like, oh, Kashana, you've been doing really great work out in the world. This is fantastic. And then saying, oh, but do you want to do a, I think it was like a, an associate director role. I'm a chief development officer at another organization responsible for a whole lot of people in lives and the entire budget. And you want and me to do what now? They offered you a junior <laughs> role, basically, right? Exactly. A junior role. Junior role. Oh, but you haven't done a billion dollar campaign. Neither have y'all. <laughs> exactly. Neither of you. And so um, I, it wasn't until a couple of years ago, literally like two or three years ago that I started to, it started to sit in my spirit that I needed to do something about it. I was mostly just like disgruntled and angry. Um, and I actually thought being a consultant was going to inculcate me from any of the biases that I experienced as a full-time team member or as a chief development officer. Ha! That's yeah, not true. sorry. Yep. No, sorry. Boop, forget that. And so I decided, like, what if I started to have more honest conversations about what it means to be a woman of color in this work? And the more I traveled globally speaking and doing sessions speaking at conferences, I realized being a woman of color actually really looks different. It, it, it when I used to say I was, you know, being a woman of color, I meant being a black woman. Right. Um, now I actually am being more inclusive of who identifies and sees themselves as a woman of color because if you're in Canada, that could mean one thing. If you're in the UK, that could mean a different thing. You're in the Caribbean, it means a different thing. You're in Africa, it means a different thing. Australia, it means something different. And so I had to really expand my own thinking about what that means, even though I my lived experiences as a Black woman. Um, and I am convinced that um, 
diversity is not a checkbox and tokenizing me and tokenizing other professionals like me is not going to make anything better. It makes it worse. And so we have a responsibility as our donor profiles are changing across all of our organizations to make sure that our professional teams reflect that change and not in a tokenistic way. So hiring me so that I can go help us bring on more black donors is ignorant. Right. Not right. having someone like me on the team when we have more folks who look like me who are wanting to give to the organization is a miss. So there's a balance you have to navigate. And so the Rooted Collaborative um, is the global uh, community I founded. And our job is really to create a community of personal and professional development for women of color around the world um, who are looking to get access to that personal development, that professional development, mentorship, job opportunities, um, guidance on how to navigate our space in a safe place. Uh, love that. I know for a fact you would be very fun to work with. And so I cannot imagine a candidate for the Rooted Collaborative to not want to sign up and we'll absolutely highlight in our show notes. It, it, just to clarify, if, if I'm a woman of color thinking about the field or is it more targeted for those that are already in the field and you provide you know, support for them? Already in the field. And okay. so we will over the next 12 months on our um, company roadmap, be providing lots more resources for women who are um, thinking about joining the field. We don't turn anybody away. Right. Um, but for right now, we are focused on women who are active fundraisers, 50% or more of their time spent raising money or giving money away. Cause we've had a lot of interest from, from women who are at foundations at institutional funders who are like, we have those communities for funding period, but also um, we give money away, but we raise it. We're like, come on, join us. Yeah. Yeah. And so really formalizing what that's going to look like over the next couple of months. We have a conference, the Rooted Retreat, that was supposed to be in person happening this July, but we're moving into an at-home retreat. Uh, <laughs> Understandable. Yeah, which is going to be, it's going to be fun. It took us some time to think about how to do that well, um, but we're going to be doing the Rooted Retreat um, this July 22nd to the 24th. So that's going to be really great um, at home. And so really thinking about what that experience is like. And we did a self-care conference right when COVID um, hit the U.S. Uh, patent and it was right during ICON for AFP. Oh, yeah. We ended up having a self-care conference at night. So all of our sessions were about how to take care of yourself. And it was from six to nine each night, three nights. Good and for you. And 400 women every night after going to ICON all day, including me. Um, signed on to talk about different ways to take care of themselves, to show up authentically, what's next in their career, like really thinking about how to move in our space. And we did that with like three days notice. And it was well done um, for that um, short of a notice. And we were like, I shouldn't have been surprised, but we were surprised by the number of women who were like, I'm in. They um, need it, right? They, they really they, needed it. It's needed. It's needed. It's needed. And so my goal is to really think about how to serve more women. And then for allies who are like, Kashana, like, don't leave us out. What are we doing? Right, what, right. What, how do we help? And I'm like, I'm coming, I'm coming. You know, so I'll have that. <laughs> Give me some time. Give me a little time yes. here, right? Yes, yes, yes. I love that. And again, I can't wait to lift it up because it's so needed. And, and I guess I would ask as we kind of close our session, you know, are you encouraged that there are more students that uh, in college taking courses in nonprofit management and philanthropy and things like that. So I'm hopeful that the pipeline exists, but it sounds like they still need the kind of guidance that you're suggesting, particularly if they're, uh, you know, in communities of color. Absolutely. I am so pumped that there are more young people who are being proactive about um, joining our sector um, I am really excited when particularly some institutions, programs that are not all theory, but their practice, that they make things real for folks. I'm excited about the professionals who are choosing fundraising, advancement, development as a career pathway, because when, when done well, it is a very, very fulfilling, um, and depending on how you do it, lucrative, right. uh, in terms of being able to provide for your family. Um, career pathway, but I do think that there's, we still have work to do around how we recruit and retain our talent, period. Um, and then going one step further, organizations really thinking about equity and how, what that looks like over time. So there's still plenty of work to be done, but I am very um, bolstered by what I'm seeing right now with young people coming out of institutions. Sean, you have provided a treasure trove of wisdom. Um, so this next question is unfair, but 
final <laughs> thoughts for someone on the nonprofit path? Uh, is there any kind of uh, concluding statement you would have of advice or counsel? Absolutely. Don't martyr yourself. Right. Interesting. This is, Interesting. This is a marathon. It is not a sprint. Um, and so train accordingly. You know, you have got to stay in the mental gym. You have got to stay in the learning arena. You have got to stay in the physical gym, in the faith gym, if that is your jam, um, yep. in your mental health bag. It is really important to fortify yourself as a professional because any profession will pull everything it can out of you, particularly if you are capable. And so in order to be able to uh, thrive over time in our profession, really being able to understand in each season of your life, what do you have to give and what do you need to be able to give it? And I think being really present in your work and not just being on autopilot is going to be such a critical, critical piece, particularly moving forward. I think a lot of us are seeing this now in the pause we're having um, in depending on um, what type of work you're doing during COVID. Right. Uh, and so really being present about what would need to be true for you to thrive in your work and then working toward that. So that'd be my last piece of advice. Wonderful. I knew you would summarize it beautifully and you did. Um, how about a parting gift for our listeners? I've asked all of my guests to consider a book they would recommend. Wondering if you might have a book on your mind that you could share with our audience. Ooh, okay. So first, you know, selfishly, y'all, I have to tell you that I finally have put pen to paper. And so my new book, Hey, I'm New Here, uh, <laughs> is going to be dropping in early September. And it is available for pre-order on heyimnewhere.com. And so go ahead and pre-order that. That's going to be for all of my new managers or managers who are doing things a new way. And so look for that from me. And right now I'm reading a ton of books. So the book that I am reading that I love right now, Patton, actually yes, is, yes, tell I'm, me. Telling, I'm telling the truth, but I'm lying. <laughs> <laughs> that by, sounds like one I need to get. Tell me. Yes, I'm telling the truth, but I'm lying by Basie Ikpai. So that is the book that I'm reading right now. So those are my two gems that I would leave you all with. That's awesome. I will absolutely incorporate them in our show notes. Give all of our listeners something else to consider for their bookshelves. Um, Shauna, where can they find out more about the great work you're doing? Absolutely. Feel free to, um, I'm across all social media at Fund Diva, F-U-N-D-D-I-V-A. So Fundraising Diva, so at Fund Diva on all social media. And you can look me up on my website at kashanaco.com, K-I-S-H-S-H-A-N-A-C-O.com. And I look forward to connecting with you all. So connect you're with awesome. you. Uh, you're awesome. Thank you so much for joining me on the path. Absolutely. So excited to be on this path with you. Well, as you can tell, I had great fun with Kashana and learned a lot, as I'm sure you did too, and came away with some practical ideas that can shape your professional development and organizational strategy. Don't forget to check out the show notes available on our website, patentmcdowell.com, where you can find out more about everything we discuss, as well as Kishana's great books and uh, resource material that she alluded to uh, at the end of our conversation. As always, please share this episode with someone else on the path. And if you haven't already, how about subscribing to the podcast? Just go to the podcast page at patentmcdowell.com and you'll see links to all of the primary podcast platforms. Don't miss any of our weekly episodes. We release these every Thursday, as well as the bonus features that we're lining up at least once a month. Thanks for all you're doing in the nonprofit sector, especially right now, and keep up the good work for causes that are most meaningful to you. I'll keep bringing you content that can help you do it even better. Have a great week, and I'll see you next time on The Path.